The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Big welcome, everyone. Nice to see folks tonight. Once a month, I just remind folks how this place has come to be. And uh, we started back in 1993. And just recently, this last month or so, we set in motion our retreat property in a big way out in western Wisconsin, about 83 miles out of town. And all this beautiful community has uh, arisen because of the wholesome, beautiful intentions of the people who come and practice. And so since the beginning in 93, we have not charged, we do everything This uh, spirit of dana is the Pali word, sometimes translated as generosity, but it really points to a quality of the heart or an attitude of the heart. You know, in a way, we understand it best as not stinginess. But but not stinginess is not just about like, oh, I should leave some money when I leave common ground. It's really just about living. Because we can be stingy with our cat and we can be stingy when we're brushing our teeth and we can be stingy pretty much any moment of our life. And if we're aware, if there's some balance presence, we'll realize this is not the, the way to be living a life. Stinginess hurts. I mean, it's really that simple. So from the beginning, we decided to operate in this way. You know, it's a little bit of a, kind of an adventure, but it really has worked for Common Ground. And I think the reason it works is it it makes it sort of builds the community on this really wholesome way of just generally relating to life. Like just for those of you in committed relationships, just start paying attention when you're relating to your partner in a stingy way versus a generous way. It's, it's just like night and day like about what it sets in motion. Or your job, like as long as you're going to have a job or you need a job, and it may be that they're exploiting you at your job. So that dynamic, you may have to do things about that. You may need to speak up. But when you're doing the work that you do at your job, notice the difference between doing it in a stingy way or doing it in a generous way. doesn't mean you shouldn't talk to your boss about a raise. It just means when you're doing your work, pragmatically, in terms of your own well-being, is it better to do your work in a stingy way or a generous way when you're cooking for yourselves or anything? So same with common ground, like how you relate to common ground. Now what that looks like, it's going to be different for each person, you know, or the resources people have, the time people have. It's going to be very different. So what allows you to have a relationship with this community and this center and the teachers who teach at the center where when you leave or when you think about Common Ground, it leaves a good feeling in your heart, right? That's for you to figure out what that is. So that's how we set it up this way. But it really puts the responsibility on each person, especially those of you who've been around for a while. Well, what is my relationship to this place? And does it feel good? And if it doesn't feel good, experiment. Give less. See if you feel better. 
give more of your time or your money, see if it fulfills better. Until you find a way, uh, a way of having a relationship that feels really good. Just like we need to do with our friends and our partners and our pets and our jobs and the, our communities too. What's my relationship like? Because you know the default is our relationships are going to arise on autopilot. Basically our habits that, who God knows where we got our habits, you know, from our parents, from our culture. So probably not always very skillful habits in terms of how we're relating. So we bring it into the light of awareness and we ask, okay, how's this relationship doing? Is it a cause for a good feeling, happiness, healing in my heart? And so since the beginning of uh, January, we've been looking at path, and in particular in terms of how the Buddha talks about path. And for me, it's, uh, I, I love reflecting on this because it, it just resonates in a deep way in my heart. And, you know, maybe it's not, you know, won't be that way for all of you. But right from the beginning, the Buddha, you know, this person, just a human being, living some 25, 2600 years ago, of course, in a very different time, a very different culture, but noticed after a while, he was well into his 20s and kind of had a, a bit of an awakening like, I don't have a clue. What's that line from Game of Thrones? You know nothing, Jon Snow. And, you know, we probably had that moment a few times in our life where we go from mostly unconsciously thinking that we know what's going on in my life, what's important, to something, you know, hitting some kind of wall or, you know, it could be almost anything. But it triggers this awakening. I mean, just um, that may be a bit of a provocative word, but it really has that flavor. And it's funny, it's not so we're not awakening to certainty. The, the, the beautiful step forward is realizing that we don't know. Because when we realize that we don't know, we become a learner instead of somebody protecting a fixed view. Because I don't want that. Because it can be a difficult transition to go from pretending that I know what I'm doing to realizing I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even know what life is about. And uh, so when somebody is in that place, then it's really nice to get this teaching from the Buddha where he says what it's about, what's actually relevant, because there's so many things we might immediately insert in our mind telling ourselves this is what's important. Having people like you, getting success, getting away from the madhouse, you know, We can insert any number of things, having cool experiences, having something to share at work tomorrow that people will want to hear, you know. But what the Buddha suggests that we uh, check out is dukkha, is the Pali word. It gets badly translated as suffering. Better translation is something like unsatisfactoriness. But that 
no matter who we are, how privileged we might be, how difficult our circumstances might be, how old we are, young we are, there's something in the nature of experience that it leaves the heart unsatisfied. And it's really interesting not just to look at difficult experience, because that's obvious, like, oh yeah, that's not satisfying, but even pleasant experience, right? Because we've had a lot of pleasant experience. But after a while, we're hungry for more. When does it end? When has it ended? When have we actually been sated so then we don't need any more? Nice experience. So there's something, another way to, another word instead of unsatisfactoriness or suffering, there's a kind of um, low-grade, endless hunger, or the word that actually is used in the Buddhist tradition, um, tanha, is usually uh, translated as thirsting. Right? There's a kind of thirst, always wanting something or wanting to get rid of something. Another way to think of the restlessness of this dukkha, the uneasiness of dukkha, is our lives are characterized by being pushed around. We're being pushed around by our likes and dislikes always, right? Like when I read the news, I don't, I'm not always sort of aware of it. I should be. It would be nice to be more aware of it. But it's, I'm looking, skimming, looking at the headlines in terms of my likes and dislikes. So, oh yeah, this, this bothers me, so I'll read this. Or this, I'm attra- this bit of information I'm attracted to. But if it's neutral, I don't read it. Right? If it's not provocative because it's a dis- related to a dislike or to a like, I tend to ignore it. And that's a kind of burning, a burning restlessness, a burning hunger, thirsting, uneasiness of the heart. Now, that sounds sort of grim, like, oh yeah, just orient your life around dukkha, around suffering. That I think I mentioned last week or two weeks ago, the word dukkha is actually related to where there's a cart and the axle and the wheel aren't really trued up. So the wheel doesn't work very well, right? Because it's out of true. It's not aligned right. So, you know, the cart doesn't really do what it's supposed to do as a cart. So for us, with dukkha, life doesn't really work. And it doesn't, it isn't particular to my life. That's always what we think. Oh, it's my life, it's my circumstances. So if only I could change my circumstances or become somebody else, somebody different than I am now, then that uneasiness, that difficulty would go away. And you see, that really characterizes that hunger, is that arrogant presumption that the problem, because we're feeling, all of us, you know, our own version of this restlessness or anxiety or uneasiness, right? Anybody not, don't have your version of that? You can be honest. Because <laughs> we'd have some questions for you. <laughs> like, how did you do that? So that 
that restlessness, part of the dynamic is I think I know how to resolve it. I have to become the person who doesn't have this or I have to become the person who has something that I don't have. Right? I'm thinking of someone in the room. If only I jump through that last hoop and finally I'm done with this part of my life, then it would be great. <laughs> but there's always more. You know, that's how life works for all of us. And, uh, you know, we, how many times did we think, God, I can't wait. Uh, I'm in high school. I can't wait until I'm out of high school. I can't wait till I meet somebody. I can't wait till I, I can't. Those, a lot of those things have come our way and that uneasiness in our life, in our heart, hasn't completely at least gone away. So the Buddha says, you want to know like how to live a good life? Orient around dukkha. Have an honest relationship with dukkha. And so the whole path is really, it begins at this place where we realize Dukkha is relevant. This uneasiness in my heart is not something to hide from or to, de- to deny or to feel like I'm a failure because I feel this or sense this. It's like to own it proudly in a sense. Oh yeah, there's Dukkha. There's this uneasiness, unsettledness, neurotic uh, engagement with my wants and my, my dislikes. And it's endless. And I don't know what I'm doing about it. I don't know. I don't know the way out. So the key is to become a learner. But see, it's a, it's scary to be a learner. To really own that we don't know is actually a very empowered place to own that we don't know. I don't know what I'm doing, because then we look in a fresh way, and that's really what spiritual practice requires. Because a lot of uh, what sort of is called spiritual practice, are minds that grab a hold of some belief, you know, join a group that has, shares that belief, whatever it is, and then, you know, hold to that, use the community to help hold to that. And so we have answers, but we're not interested in investigating so much. I mean, I'm not pointing fingers, I'm just saying, I mean, you can do this with Buddhism, like if you look at, especially people who are raised in, you know, Buddhist families, where it's sort of offered as, like, this is just the way it is, believe it, you know, then that is a tenuous place, I mean, and a a lot of what allows us to kind of continue is to convince other people that this is the way, because then we say, well, gosh, if that person agrees, you know, or if we built a temple, you know, and this is true in Buddhism as much as any sort of religious temple, let's, let's build a big Buddhist stupa. It's got to be true. I mean, look at people build this huge golden stupa. You know, these are these big things you see in Asian, Buddhist Asian countries. You know, why would people do that if it isn't right or true? You know, or the big cathedrals in Europe or the big mosques or whatever it might be. So there's this tendency to not be a learner, to not be in that humbled place of starting at ground zero, which is there is this sensitive, uneasy, aching, 
vulnerability here. And the Buddha says, and it makes sense to me, it's relevant. It's relevant that my heart feels the way that it is. And I can kind of trace my own sort of awakening as a spiritual person back even as a, a youngster, but sure, for sure in high school and then in my early 20s, as just like at first feeling like the suffering, the uneasiness, the unsatisfactoriness was sort of a problem to, to sort of shove down. You know, you don't want to talk about it. You, nobody invites us to talk about this, right? You, it's like, and I remember like when I met um, my spouse, Wynn, um, co-founder of Common Ground, one of our teachers here, um, we both moved into this uh, ashram in New York at the same time. And there's a lot of meditation and yoga and breathing practices, and we practice celibacy. And this is I was er, my mid and mid twenties, I guess, early twenties. And uh, but you know, we we lived together for two years before there's any sort of social um, romantic inclination. But I noticed immediately that just as you know, person my age, like, oh, this person knows dukkha. It was like that people who are connected to their suffering are kind of a, there's an authenticity when somebody's brokenness, like, life is fucking broken. And it's especially when the outer circumstances are, you know, in the great scheme of things, pretty good. And even then, there's a sense that I don't get this thing called happiness. I don't, at least I don't get all my instincts about how to find happiness. They don't seem to deliver. Can't imagine how they're going to deliver. But we don't know anything better, so we just keep keep on keeping on, you know, pursuing happiness in ways that our experiences clearly demonstrated don't lead to any lasting satisfaction. And yet, you know, it's like I was joking a couple of weeks ago, dangling popcorn. Yeah, you just do this talk, Mark, and when you go home, you can have popcorn or whatever, you know, just. And it kind of gets us through the next hour or two, and then, oh, the, then you could go lie down and go to bed, you know. Yeah, I know getting up is hard, but you get green tea, you know. And if you're really good, you get. <laughs> You know, you can have a soft-boiled egg on your favorite toast, and you can put as much butter on that toast as you want. <laughs> you know, and you get to listen to the news, right? Now, you know, it's just like, why would I want to do that? But this is this is the things we dangle in front of us, like the kind of animate our lives. And if we're at all reflective, like if we take the the Buddha's invitation and we start to orient around that uneasy, subtle sometimes, sometimes it's not subtle at all, uh, that uneasy feeling in our heart, you know, we see how much of what we're pursuing and moving toward isn't really addressing that uneasiness. In a way, you know, for a group of folks that cultivate mindful awareness, this is the primary meditation object, not just when we're sitting, of course, all day long. We're feeling the sensitive heart. 
And what's the sensitive heart sensitive to? Underneath everything? Uneasiness. Unsettledness. The absence of perfect, unshakable peace. Right. So whatever you want to call the absence of unshakable, constant ease, peace, that's dukkha. And the fact that it's there, it we start to notice it really animates a lot of what we say, a lot of what we do, a lot of what we think. And it creates these cycles of me or you trying to be happy in ways that end up adding or feeding that stress, that uneasiness. So we try harder and that feeds the uneasiness. And we try better and it feeds the uneasiness. And even when we try different ways, because the premise is there's somebody who's uneasy who needs to get something in order to be at ease. That's never questioned. So when we orient around the unease, as the Buddha says, we establish dukkha as our primary interest as a human being. We still raise kids, we still go to work, brush our teeth, do the stuff humans do, but this is what we're actually attuned to. And it's not grim. It's called being real, it's called being authentic, it's liberating, because it's so exhausting to stay in denial of the uneasiness of our hearts, to pretend that I'm somehow not feeling what I'm feeling. You can sense that sometimes. We Not so much in ourselves, because we don't tend to look inward. But we can sense that in friends, like they're trying hard not to be exposed and vulnerable and unsure and insecure. And it's such a gift to our friends and to the world to model like I'm insecure, I'm uneasy, I'm vulnerable and I and I'm not afraid. I'm I'm no longer willing to deny it, you know? It's sort of what they do in the twelve step community. I'm sure some of you know, but maybe many of you haven't been in any of the twelve step groups, but often, you know, whether it's alcohol and alcoholics anonymous or any of the other groups sort of supporting people working on their addiction, addictive patterns. But they often begin with that just owning, you know, I'm, a, I'm addicted. I'm addicted to struggling. I'm addicted to denial. I'm addicted to, you know, thinking the grass is greener when I become or when I get rid of, right? So that's, our addi- that's the main addiction. And then the alcoholism or drug addiction or sex addiction, addiction or food addiction, those are just sub-expressions of the basic addiction in Buddhism, we call it the cycles of samsara, trying to be happy in ways that don't lead to happiness. We try to be happy by getting and getting rid of. Now, I know it makes a difference when we get things and when we get rid of things. There is an impact, but, but we don't really follow with awareness, with a real integrity of awareness to see how limited it is. Like it could... It can see, seem so appealing, like, oh, when I get to bed tonight, my problems will be resolved. And it might feel really good to crawl into bed tonight or whatever you know you might be looking forward to. But just to kind of keep tracking that, and then it changes. And it's not such a big deal. 
then it's no longer a cause for satisfaction after a while. And that burning, restless, hunger, thirsting, whatever, reemerges. So a wiser human being, you know, it's, it makes sense. This is, this is just common knowledge, even in ordinary places in our lives, where we move from a short-term perspective to the longest-term perspective. I'm not interested in running the rat race. I'm interested in really resolving this. This is from Bhikkhu's, Bhikkhu Bodhi's um, book. And I mentioned that as uh, in the next weeks when I'm talking about PATH, uh, I think Gabe Keller Flores, our uh, office manager and one of our teachers here, he uh, put both of these books, Ask uh, Moon Palace Books, to have it. And they sell these books for 20% off. So one is the book I'm about to read from Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, The Noble Eightfold Path, The Way to the End of Suffering. So this is a real sort of traditional, uh, uh, often translation of the Buddhist teachings. And, and Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a, an American Buddhist monk, spent many decades in Sri Lanka, though now in semi-retirement at a monastery in uh, New York State, I believe now. Great book, very condensed. And then uh, a well-known Sri Lankan teacher here in the West, Bhante Gunaratana, he's uh, getting close to his 90s now, maybe even in his 90s, uh, not teaching so much anymore, but a a wonderful teacher. Um, And this is his book on the Eightfold Path called Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness. So those are at Moon Palace, which is on Minnehaha Avenue, just about a half mile away from here. Really great independent bookstore. You can pick them up there online, I'm sure. So this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi's book. And it's right at the beginning where he's sort of talking about the path. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, this uh, American Buddhist monk, writes, The Buddha does not merely touch the problems of suffering tangentially, He makes it, rather, the very cornerstone of his teaching. He starts the Four Noble Truths, which is a basic map the Buddha used to teach, that sums up his message with the announcement that life is inseparably tied to something he calls dukkha. The Pali word is often translated as suffering, but it means something deeper than pain and misery. It refers to the basic unsatisfactoriness running through our lives the lives of all but the enlightened, right? So anybody who's looking for satisfaction experiences dissatisfaction. So-called enlightened, awakened human beings, you know, people with deep wisdom, presumably the Buddha, for example, and presumably many folks since the time of the Buddha. Of course, there were awakened people before the time of the Buddha. The Buddha never claimed to be the only awakened person. Um, Awakened people aren't looking to be satisfied in a sense. So the, the peace that, the ease that we're waking up to isn't something you have to do something in order to deserve it. It's something you have to wake up to. Like another way to think about this is that we have this capacity for freedom, let's call it, or ease, release. In the same way that, uh, oh, another teacher says, in the same way that a two-year-old has the capacity to walk even before they've walked. They still have to figure out how to do it, but they have the capacity. 
So we have this capacity for freedom, for not being that hamster in the wheel, driven by our likes and dislikes. There's a way to be a human being, engaged, you know, not some weirdo, not doing anything, whatever that might be, but like really engaged in life, in relationship, doing good stuff, contributing, but with a heart that's unburdened by its habit or current habits of striving to be satisfied. So when the moment is really pleasant, that heart would be really awake, really intimate. Oh yeah, it's really pleasant now. feels like this. Totally letting the joy or the pleasantness be whatever it is. And when life is really miserable, you've lost somebody you've loved, you know, you're experiencing injustice, then that heart of a, an awakened person realizes this is really difficult. It feels like this. It looks like this. It's not okay. But I'm okay that it's this way right now. I'm not going to add mental resistance. I'm not going to add anything. I'm just going to do what might be useful in this moment to alleviate suffering. But I'm not going to imagine that I have to be suffering because the conditions are really bad. Isn't that what we think? Isn't it interesting, like, if, especially like if you're in a good mood and a friend calls you and something really badly has happened. And I really watched my mind around this. And it happens a lot. You know, I do a lot of spiritual counseling in my role. And so people come in and they're in really difficult place in life. I mean, really extremely difficult stuff happens sometimes, of course. Just like it's probably happened to some of you, maybe a lot of you in the room at some in some moments. And then when somebody comes to us with that, it almost feels like to be empathetic or to be a loving, compassionate human being, we have to take on their suffering. Or we start to suffer because their suffering reminds us that I'm vulnerable to that kind of suffering too. I'm not out of the woods. <clears throat> Whatever might be happening to this person could possibly happen to me. So really look at that next time that happens and just see you know, if you can show up and realize this person is in a really difficult place. They might have a really confused mind. They may be lashing out. They might be in a really dark place. But I'm not helpful. My suffering because of their suffering isn't going to help them in any way. So uh, it's not like we're not respecting their suffering by remaining at ease, balanced and at ease, peaceful and released, not burdened by suffering. But not burdened doesn't mean we're not aware, we're not connecting. It just means w our attention is really what c might be done that could be helpful, not, oh my God, right? Which is what we tend to do. We personalize it like, oh, I'm around somebody suffering. But see, that doesn't contribute to ourselves or to their well-being. So look at that habit because that gives us, gives us a little sense of what the Buddha means by awakening. What the heck would be an enlightened or an awakened human being? 
There is somebody who's navigating a life of joy and sorrow, but not burdened by the joy, not tight about the joy, not burdened by the sorrow, not tight about the sorrow. An awakened being does what is useful to do always. They just keep doing because their heart isn't sort of uh, relating to life in a way that squeezes the heart. The heart is relating, the mind is relating in a way of being free. Sort of, as they say in the Bible, you might know this line, uh, in the world but not of the world. Is that how it goes? Anybody remember? I think that's how it goes. I think that's their own way in the Christian tradition of pointing to that experience where on the one hand I'm all in as a human being, in community, in relationship, in the complexity, in the messiness. But I've learned not to be afraid of the complexity and the messiness, the joy and the sorrow. Right? I've learned this is how it is. I'm not expecting to get anything out of it. Right? So then I can give my life away completely. And so that gives us a little sense of this path that begins with dukkha. Because Knowing what the problem is really helps guide how we live our life. And one of the definitions of the cycles of suffering, samsara, is trying to solve the problem when we don't know what it is. We think it is, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough respect. I don't have enough, you know, my muscles aren't big enough. I mean, all kinds of stuff we think. If only this, then I'll be, right? But with what the Buddha is saying is get really interested in that uneasy feeling and let it become, with practice, stabilize your, you know, develop this capacity to be awake, to be mindful of that. You know, that's your meditation object. And then just notice what feeds it, what supports the uneasiness, and what allows it to diminish. And that's the learning. I mean, it's so simple. We're missing the barometer that's telling us, you know that game you used to play when you blindfold somebody and and then you tell them they're getting warmer or colder, you know, depending. Well, when we have the stability of present moment awareness and we're honest, there is this uneasiness in my heart and I'm tracking it all day long through the joyful moments, through the ordinary moments, through the painful moments. I'm just tracking and what's adding and what's allowing for a releasing of that existential anxiety, that underlying uneasiness, we find our way. And basically, you know, th- we get the pointing out, which is the Buddha saying, yeah, selfing. You always find when you're selfing around the joyful moments, that anxiety will increase. When you're selfing around the difficult moments, the anxiety will increase. When you're selfing around the ordinary moments, nothing's happening to me. Anxiety increases. But And when we're not doing that, when that's abandoned step by step, everything gets lighter. I mean, it's really that simple. We lack the barometer. So we develop the capacity to be mindfully aware so we can pay attention to this subtle It's not just the ordinary pain in the heart or the ordinary happiness in the heart. 
It's the uneasiness of the heart. It's kind of the background flavor of the heart that we have to track, we have to be really honest about. And we can really help each other. This is what Dharma friends are about. Like, we're happy to talk about that. And it doesn't, it's like somebody could be having a really great life and be very aware of that feeling. Right? And there could be somebody who's, you know, having um, a great life, but they're not aware of that feeling. And they'll feel so betrayed when whatever is going well in their life eventually changes. Like whatever the cause for their imagined happiness is, they don't realize how vulnerable it is because it will always change. Whatever someone is banking on, deriving happiness from, it's not something they actually own and can count on. Whatever it might be, beauty, success, being loved, whatever it might be, like everything, it's fragile. So I'll leave it here. Be nice. We have about 15 minutes. It's always nice to hear from folks. We ask that people stay to the end. We always end right at 8.30 on Sunday nights. And it's good etiquette just to stay for the community conversation. There's a lot of collective wisdom in the room. Your own version of your path, how you understand it, how the learning has happened, what supported the insights or learning on your path, questions that you come up have come up from what I've shared. And we'll just continue for the next couple months on the Buddha's uh, teachings on path. But what comes to mind? Who would like to begin? Hi. Thank you for your talk. Um, I had a question about honoring your parents. Um, I I just wondered if you might be able to speak a little bit about that, especially um, when you feel like there are challenges with um, kind of... um, understanding um, each other. Yeah. Well, let me just say initially that in the tradition, and part of this is, uh, I'm guessing, Asian Asian culture, uh, certainly in some um, Asian countries, there's a very strong, as there used to be, I think, here in the West, um, but a very strong orientation towards ancestors and parents and respecting elders and especially one's parents. And that's big in the sort of Buddhist culture as well. But I think what's, I think the important thing is not to believe that because we're told to believe it, but to see whether that's true, whether we feel, you know, often we use this word karmic connection. doesn't mean that our parents were good parents. And it doesn't even mean that we like them, right? It just means we feel some kind of connection, obligation. And uh, most people, uh, as they become more sensitive and heal from whatever wounds they may have from being raised imperfectly by their parents, you know, because anybody have perfect parents, right? Probably not. And have a little distance and really kind of look at that connection, that karmic connection. There's a sense like uh, some things in life we don't have a choice about and caring, doing the best we can to care for our parents is one of those things that 
Now, it doesn't have to be your responsibility, but if your heart feels like when you know your parents are needing something, like even just a phone call from you, and you know that that would be impactful for them, then you want to really check to see like, uh, what is it like to not be taking care of them by calling them, something that simple, even though it might be a really unpleasant experience for you to get on the phone with them. And just sort of I, like I was saying around generosity at the beginning, it's like what leaves a better trace in your heart, not calling or calling and dealing with the aftermath of the calling. Now, it's not like you're calling to get something. You're calling because it feels like the right thing to do. It feels like the trace in the heart, what's left in the heart, will be better to call, or whatever it might be. And I'm just using that as an example, than to not call. And remember, with these sort of sticky places in life, like with our parents, don't expect some map to arise, like, oh, this is how I should deal with my parents. It's really like one thing at a time. Should I call them or not? Should I go home for the holiday or not? Should I, you know, break away and not have any contact with them? Should I have them move in because they need help? You know, all these things, you're just going to take one, like in a very pragmatic way. Okay, if I do it, you know, the best possible way this what might be left. And you're not going to know. And you're just going to do something and then you're going to check, oh, I wasn't expecting it to feel like this. This does not feel right. So let me try something else. Right? So we just keep... And it's a little bit any place in our life where there's uh, you know, just some kind of karmic situation where this, like a particular kind of relationship, keeps happening. Meeting the same kind of person getting enmeshed with the same kind of person, whether it's at work or in a romantic uh, relationship. And then that's what we want to think about, okay, you know, what, what am I not seeing? How might I relate differently that will leave a different trace in my heart? Because the idea is to interact in a way that feels very light and clean. I remember, you know, just helping my parents, and I have a big family of siblings, so I wasn't alone, which has made it easier. And my family was relatively functional, um, pretty solid family in the great scheme of things. But I, just all of us kids helping my parents die, basically, you know, in the ways my mom had Alzheimer's for a long time. We kept her at home. And, um, and then also quite involved with my dad's dying process. And I remember after both of them died, after each one of them died, just that feeling like of lightness, not like good son, but like I'm so glad I leaned in. I'm so glad I did my best to show up. It wasn't perfect, and I there were a lot of us helping. But it, uh, but that like, I I feel like there's not a lot of regret not a lot of like unfinished business, which feels really light. And I think that's the idea, not saving our parents, not expecting them to save you, right? 
that how can the relationship move in the direction of being lighter and lighter instead of more and more enmeshed, more and more karmic business, so that at some point it feels really clean. Like, I fulfilled my role as a son or daughter, you know, as offspring of these folks who brought me into this world. I haven't neglected my duty. Just like our duties to other communities. But the parents, you know, clearly that's a significant obligation. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Who would like to go next? Hi, everybody. I'm Marianne. I just had this very interesting thought, and I'm sure that it's been probably asked in this room a million times, but I've never heard an answer. How could what I identify as a lifelong tendency towards depression and suffering really only be something like dukkha? How could it only be something like dukkha? Not really, not really only, but how can um, <clears throat> how can what I identify as my my own personal suffering throughout my life over anything <clears throat> be called by some other name than depression and be called something like uh, what you what you've been talking about this whole night? Well, framing it in a different, more um, hopeful, life-giving, normalizing way. Yeah, but we're not trying to spin a tail. We're trying to have a more direct and honest, immediate experience. So that when, when like if someone has a tendency towards depression um, or any kind of chronic uh place of suffering, experience of suffering in their lives. The question is, um, how can I have a more honest, direct, immediate experience so that my interpretation and my not liking of it isn't coloring, but I really want to see what's happening. What is this experience I'm calling depression? What's the feeling in the body right now? What's the quality in the mind? Not the interpretation, not my story about what's happening to me. What's the actual moment-to-moment experiencing of body and mind that you're calling whatever you call it, right? So we're, we're kind of, and we're, we're learning in a sense to peel back the layers and get to the underlying feeling of that. Well, what's that feeling? Can I be with that feeling? You know, as opposed to thinking I can't be with that feeling, deciding I can't be with that feeling, deciding that, mostly unconsciously, deciding that I should resist the unpleasant feeling. What happens if I don't resist the unpleasant feeling of that thing I'm calling depression? And I just, I'm, instead I'm actually curious and I'm a little soft, letting it do whatever it's going to do, non-resisting. So we're, we're taking the position of the learner as opposed to the person who's certain I'm screwed or whatever, you know, the sort of summation of this is a bad problem. It's been this way for decades. It's really not okay. 
believing a story like that is very oppressive. It's, there's a lot of suffering in identifying with a story of suffering. So we're replacing that habit of identifying with the story with having a relationship with the direct and immediate experiencing of the body and the mind moment by moment. It's much more workable. doesn't mean that the ex- what we're going to be experiencing in the body or the mind is going to be pleasant. It just means it won't be as oppressive as the story. And of course, doesn't mean that all the things that can be helpful we should stop doing. Like medication can be really helpful. Exercise, you know, all these things that all of you have learned, you know, diet, exercise, community. There's so many um, just ordinary things that are part of the array of medicine for our mental health, whether someone has a very particular chronic mental health issue or just ordinary mental suffering that humans have. We want an array of skills or of skillful means to work with. Yeah, thanks, Marianne. And just so anybody in the room, there is a group that meets uh, once a month, uh, Mindfulness and Depression Group. Um, And so people might want to join. That's on Sunday afternoon. Yeah, Femi, please. Want to pass the mic over? It's got to be quick, though. We just have a couple minutes. Thank you. Thank you first for the teaching, Mark. I appreciate the point you made about uh, uh, when things are good, it can kind of be difficult to, uh, I don't know, difficult to, as I hear it, like to go deeper in the teaching or to, and why I say this is because, you know, as of late, you know, things have been good in life, kind of stable, and so there's a certain degree of equanimity in my life, and then I realize that um, in addition to that degree of equanimity, there's part that isn't... um, that actually isn't there's there's genuine equanimity and there's a part that just looks like it's equanimity um it's a good look <laughs> thank you no it is yeah and it's 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 seductive and it can be like oh yeah okay you got this you got it. and uh one way that i know that that um that facade of equanimity is separate from that actual equanimity is because when 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 the life gets gets challenged in some way or the heart gets pierced then the response i have uh it 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 doesn't add up to this vast deeply equanimous being that i that at least shows up on my facebook pages yeah yeah um and i say that because you know today i found out kobe bryant died and that just i was so mad at like the fragility of life like here's this amazing, super fantastic, you know, beautiful fan, and all of his miles. It, it, it can't protect him from the fragility of life, and I don't, I've just been angry. I've been angry that life is this fragile, and and I, don't, I think there's a certain is is it's beautiful, it's smart, it's what it's wise that there's this is this, this turning with me. I'm I'm actually I don't, I'm not judging myself from my, the emotions that are run, running through me. What it is is like it's giving me insight into saying like uh, like that 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 life is fragile and uh, and just like to kind of to not 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 deceive myself in in where I am in this process of understanding, accepting, and working with the fragility that is this human life. 
Yeah, no, it's deep. It's really deep, Femi. And that's, we shouldn't pretend that we get it. But in Buddhism, we talk about this as a kind of cool quality of love. Cool quality of love. And so when something surprising like this happens, or anything that might, it's like we're replacing the sort of shock with a coolness that can't be surprised. A coolness that is so integrated with the truth of impermanence, the truth of uncertainty, the truth of fragility. So it's sort of like that passion, you know, passion, which we think of as a positive word, some of you know that it means suffering, right? Interesting. So we kind of like the idea of peace, but it's an acquired taste, that coolness of peace, like of just doing what the moment needs, knowing anything can happen, knowing I can't, can't get solid ground. All we can do is participate in this world in a clean way. That's what we can aspire to. And actually, it's enough. That's a beautiful life to give ourselves completely to the living without any effort to try to get solid ground. Because that's where we start cheating each other and harming each other. And that's where we get surprised, too. So it's a I know it doesn't sound like liberation because it sounds a little bit, oh, you're asking us, the Buddha's asking us to sober up. But the, the thing is, we don't know how much freedom and love is in that sobering up. We have to check it out to see. So that that kind of shock when someone like Kobe Bryant or somebody that just was an important person, an icon for us, and it, and it really cuts deep because it reminds us something that's true for us, for your mom, for everybody around you, um, then it could actually evoke a sense of profound tenderness instead of when we're, when we're, that equanimity isn't deep, then we feel like our stability has been betrayed. Like, what are you doing messing with my life? I didn't see that coming. You know, that's not fair. Right? That's what we want to say when something, and it's his daughter and the other two people in the helicopter. But, but there can be just, oh yeah, that's how it is. Anything can happen any time. And there's that deep, beautiful brokenness or tenderness. And that's trustworthy, that, that feeling. Yeah, thanks for the great comment, Femi. And we need to leave it here. It's a couple of minutes after. Thanks everyone for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.